over the weekend, President Biden attended something called the National Prayer Breakfast, which is hosted by Congress. I don't know why there is such a thing in a country that has allegedly a separation between church and state, but the prayer breakfast was started during the Eisenhower administration. It was during that administration that the words under God were also added to the Pledge of Allegiance, so I'm not entirely sure what was going on with Eisenhower. Anyway, the point of this is not the prayer breakfast itself. It's remarks that President Biden made during them. He said to Mitch McConnell, Mitch, I don't want to hurt your reputation, but we are really are friends. And that is not an epiphany we're having here at the moment. We've always, you've always done exactly what you've said. You're a man of your word, of your word, and you're a man of honor. Thank you for being my friend. Are you fucking kidding me? Is Mitch McConnell a man of his word? I think he is. He promised that he would do everything in his power to make sure that President Obama was a one-term president. He failed, but he did try his hardest to make that happen. He promised that he would refuse to allow Barack Obama to fulfill his constitutional duty to appoint a Supreme Court justice. Yep, man of his word. He made that happen, and instead of Merrick Garland, which I agree was not an inspired choice on Obama's part, we got the egregious Neil Gorsuch, about whom more in a second. He also said, Mitch McConnell, that he would do everything in his power to derail Joe Biden's presidency. And let's think about that for a second. That, that's not just about making Biden look bad or, you know, making it harder for him to do his job. That's about hurting the American people. That's about making sure that the Democrats don't pass any legislation that will make this country a better, safer, more humane, more stable place. Yes, Mitch McConnell is a man of his word. Man of honor, on the other hand, this is a guy who is willing to destroy the world economy, in order to hold the Democrats hostage to push through his agenda, even when he's in the minority, by refusing to raise the debt ceiling. This is a man who stands proudly for photographs in front of a Confederate flag. The next point I want to make is about said Supreme Court. They just, via shadow docket, made it harder for black people to vote. Or I should say they made it harder for the votes of black people to count. Those five extreme right-wing conservatives on the Supreme Court don't give a shit about the rights of black people to exercise the franchise in this country. Why am I talking about what seem to be two completely different situations? Because the Democrats need to stop pretending that they can make common cause with this party that wants nothing more than the death of American democracy. The Democrats need to start taking the threats seriously. They need to call fascists fascists, and they need to stop deluding themselves that somebody as despicable as Mitch McConnell is our friend or that this Supreme Court is in any way legitimate. Freeze out the Republicans in Congress. Add four more seats 
to the Supreme Court and double the size of the federal judiciary. We fail to do so at our peril because everything is at stake. I'm really grateful to have as my guest today, Kurt Bardella, who isn't just a frequent commentator on MSNBC and political strategist, but he also has an incredible story to tell about his own political journey and bonus is a country music fanatic. So we'll get to all of that. Hi, Kurt. How are you? Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those situations where even though we only met, if you can even call it that, on a shared hit with <laughs> Joy Reid. Uh, I feel like I've known you for a while because I've seen you so often. Um, not just talking about what's going on, but deconstructing it from a unique perspective, I think. Uh, and and in a way that's that's so measured and complex yet relatable um, that I think it has helped a lot of us understand just what has happened on the right to the extent that one can understand it. Uh, So that's that's sort of the first thing I want to talk to you about. It feels like, and don't get me wrong, I've been a progressive liberal Democrat my entire life, so I've never quite understood why people were Republicans anyway. (laughs) But the difference between the party in the 80s and now feels um, exponential. How did you experience the shift? Or did you, did you experience it as a gradual thing or a sort of a seismic shift? You know, it really was a seismic thing for me. And I think part of that is going back to, to my origin story, politically speaking, in terms of being a Republican – and it was one of the situations where, for me, it was almost by happenstance. You know, the party found me. Uh, I was just out of high school. I was, I was 17 years old still, actually. And a California state legislator was having a fundraiser at a restaurant that I happened to work at. That was my first interaction with a politician of any kind. And after talking with them for the better part of that evening, he ultimately invited me to become an intern in his office, Two weeks into that, they offered me an actual job. At one point, I think I was the youngest staffer in the history of the state legislator because I was still 17 technically, but out of high school. And one year turned into two years, which turned into four years, and all of a sudden I get the opportunity to be a press secretary on Capitol Hill in D.C. And over this this course of time – I began to think of it much more as a sport than an ideological decision. It was, this was my team. They gave me an opportunity, one I wouldn't have had otherwise. And our job is to beat the other guys. And shocking as it might be to, to, to hear this, Republicans don't exactly sit around and talk about philosophical issues all day long. They, they don't sit around. Is, that, is this breaking news? I think you just broke I mean, news. On this I know this will blow people's minds, but we don't talk about guns or climate change or income inequality or social justice. We sit around and talk about just at what we would call normal everyday things. We talk about sports. We talk about how much we hate Nancy Pelosi. We talk about <laughs> so we're not talking about the greater good. And so what I came to find ultimately was so many issues 
that really determine what your ideology is, I had never explored in any real meaningful way, just superficial political speak ways. And mm -hmm. along the way, I leave Capitol Hill and I, like everybody, start my own consulting firm. And one of my good buddies at the time just started working at a place called Breitbart News for a guy named Steve Bannon. Now, people need to understand something here. Breitbart today was not what it was initially. When Andrew died, that very much changed, I think, the trajectory of what that company would be. And I came on board right around yep. that time. And there was, to Steve Bannon's credit, he had an observation. And that observation was that the mainstream media had no idea how to cover what was going on in the Republican Party at the time. Uh, yep. At this time, this was the kind of great Tea Party versus establishment fight going on. He foresaw really what would become Trumpism, but about seven years earlier. And I agreed with that assessment. I agreed that, yeah, the people who write at Huffington Post have no idea how to cover what's going on with the base Republican Party and that there was space in this kind of Internet bonanza that we were having for a digital media company to come along and own the conversation on the center right, to be the mirror of what HuffPost was to the left at that time. Now, over the course of time, it became very clear that this wasn't going to be the mission of Breitbart or Steve Bannon, that this was the Steve Bannon vanity project. This was the let's make Steve Bannon important. Let's make Steve Bannon the central figurehead. Let's make Steve Bannon the epicenter of everything, which was not what I signed up for, which is why I ultimately left. Um, but Kurt, it did. It it was that for sure. Um, you know, maybe the only person who could rival Donald's narcissism, or one of the few. I'm sure there are others, but you know. Um, and we'll get to how that worked out for Bannon in the end. But it, there was, and I don't want to say ideological, because as you say, there was nothing ideological or philosophical behind any of this. But in terms of issues, um, he. He or Breitbart did shift the narrative away, uh, sorry, towards immigration. Yes. Um, and used it very effectively, as they continue to do, sadly, mm -hmm. as a wedge issue, not between Republicans and Democrats, but between really extreme Republicans and middle-of-the-road Republicans. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think one of the most seismic moments in what would ultimately become today's Republican Party, was actually when a guy named Dave Bratt defeated the sitting House Majority Leader Eric Cantor in a primary solely on the issue of immigration. And, the, you know, and a couple of things came of that. One, the fact that no one in the media had any idea that that was going to happen. You know, this was one of the few times in my lifetime that there was a genuine election night shocker, that people were just – they mm -hmm. couldn't believe this had happened. However, if you had been paying it. There was another one that happened more recently, but um, I don't remember. Something, 2016, maybe there was another one of those. But anyway, getting <laughs> back to Brad. But, it's like, but this was back <laughs> in you know, like 2014. And, yeah. you know, and, and on the power of that issue, that wedge issue of immigration splitting Republicans, it's not even about Republicans versus Democrats. This is a Republican on Republican fight. The fact that that right. could happen. And that the establishment could be so blindsided by it, that Cantor could be so blind. This is a guy who was groomed to be the future Speaker of the House from the minute he got to Congress. And the fact that he That's got right. taken down by a guy named Dave Bratt, who no one had ever heard of, who ran only on the issue of immigration, which, shocking is just made to believe, is not really an issue in Northern Virginia. <laughs> like, we don't have an immigration problem but in Virginia. They, 
they don't share a border with uh, Mexico. I mean, I guess unless you're worried about a northern aggression from Canada, I don't know what the hell that why that was even an issue. Well, we might have to, but <laughs> that's a that's a story for a later time. Um, but that example is um, chilling because it feels like that's what's happening now between the Republicans and the Democrats. Republicans, uh, elected Republicans, are lockstep on every issue, it feels like, across the board with very, very, very few exceptions. Mm -hmm. And now it's the Democrats who aren't taking the threat seriously. And I think, you know, one of the interesting evolutions is, you know, along the way, I I divorced myself from Bannon, from Breitbart. I become a Democrat, uh, join the Democratic Party, and become a consultant to the Democratic Party, in part because the people that, that, that brought me in, Jamie Harrison, the chair of the DNC, Sean Patrick Maloney, the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they observed that there isn't someone like me in their house who can tell them, hey, this is what Republicans are doing. This is why. This is how they're going to attack you. We need to be a thousand times more aggressive. And there is just a fun – and we've talked about this on, on, on Joy's show. There is a DNA difference between how Republicans attack things, and this is just tactical, not even ideologically, not even it just from a, a mm-hmm. tactical standpoint, how Democrats and Republicans see the world is so different. And at a time where so much is at stake, Democrats need a little bit more of that Republican DNA if they want to win this fight. Yeah, I, that absolutely. But also, they need to understand. It seems like they don't understand what's going on that should force that shift in strategy. And that's the part that scares me because it's one thing not to have it be in your DNA um, because you think it's business as usual. So why should you have to go against the grain and do something that makes you uncomfortable? It's, and, and I think, you know, Democrats should, should have been more aggressive a long time ago. But now we're we're facing an existential threat, and it looks it looks to me like the majority of Democrats in Congress, including uh, and President Biden, who apparently thinks Mitch McConnell is his friend and is a man of honor, um, just can't get over their history. I mean, is it collegiality? Is it just a failure to understand how the part the Republican Party is involved? What do you think is going on there? Because I agree with you. All you need to do is look at fundraising emails. You get one from a Republican and it basically says, give me your money. If you don't, you're a traitor to America. (laughs) The Democrats say, I am so sorry to bother you. But I mean, if you give, give me like 10 cents, that would be, if you can't, don't worry about it. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's quite unnerving. Yeah. You know, Democrats fundamentally, truly, I think, believe in their hearts that the world should operate in a way in which being right should matter. Being right should actually win the day. Having the facts, having the truth, that should be enough to win out. And unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. It's not even close to the world that we live in, considering one of the two major political parties in America has made it their fundamental DNA to not accept truth and reality. That's what we're up against. And I don't think Democrats can reconcile that. I get asked all the time by Democratic strategists, consultants, you know, do Republicans really believe what they're saying? Do they really believe this? And my response is always, 
that doesn't matter. Like if if you think that matters, you've missed the point completely. And I think that exactly. because a lot of these Democrats, they know that many of their colleagues don't believe this. They know that their colleagues are parroting you know, a line really to try to get ahead that they think, well, I know that he doesn't really believe it. He's a decent fellow. So, you know, we're not going to go after him that way. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're missing the boat here. You're getting played because it doesn't matter at this point right. whether they believe it or not in their heart. They're acting on it. They're doing it. And you're just sitting there pining for the way it used to be. And I tell you, we're never going back to the days of a, of a Senate where you have a Ted Kennedy and a John McCain sit in together. Like that, that's done. Those people mm-hmm. have been replaced by the the Josh Hollies and the Ted Cruz's and the Marco Rubio's and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Bobarts and Paul Gosars. That's what's here. Mm-hmm. That's the reality that we have to deal with. And I spend almost all of my time and energy trying to make sure that people within the Democratic Party realize, listen, the stakes cannot be higher. There is no low too low that these people will not stoop. So you need to approach this not with a, a freaking pillow and a knife fight. You need to bring a bazooka to this fight if you want to have a fighting chance. Yeah. Yeah, at least. Um, it's it's always been so interesting for me to uh, listen to you, to watch you. Um, and sometimes the Chiron would say former, formerly of Breitbart. And what you said and the way you said it seems so at odds with that, uh, you know, um, entry on your CV. Because, you know, you say that it was back then it was about the horse race and the uh, the politics, not the policy, not the ideology, not the philosophy. And yet you were so thoughtful about these things that, you know, the dangers facing us and what the parties stand for or don't, as the case may be. So what was there a specific thing that kind of pushed you over the edge uh, to the point where you realize that, you know, this isn't this isn't a game anymore? You know, it's funny because in the beginning, when it was the the the, the Breitbart's and Bannon's against people like John Boehner and Eric Kanner. I didn't really care because I think those guys are tools and they suck anyway. And so <laughs> they really I like do. when Canner, <laughs> they still when Canner lost, I wasn't shedding a tear. Like, I, I, again, I like the guy sucked like good. He should lose. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's terrible. Yeah. Uh, Boehner, no better to me either. Um, it's, it, it became very different though. When it, when, when it extended beyond inner party GOP fights and became a, a much bigger threat. And really the, the seminal moment for me, was after the presidential primary debate when I watched Trump just slice through low energy Jeb and Lil Marco, and I'm like, oh my God, these guys have no idea how to do. De- he's going to win the primary, like he's going to eat them alive. They don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. And Bannon is going to be riding shotgun to this. That is a terrifying thought that this guy will be the right-hand man to the potential president. This has got to stop. And so pretty much from that moment on, I I left and and, and began to be the person to say, listen, this is serious. Take this seriously. This isn't a joke. These people aren't messing around. And it's not even about Donald Trump at that moment. It was Steve Bannon was the greater evil to me, having worked Mm -hmm. with, like, he knows what he's doing. Trump was just an instrument for Bannon 
to try to achieve power and and put in place a, a very extreme radical and dangerous agenda and having him be the virtual chief of staff to someone like that. I'm like, oh my God, we have we got to wake up. And so that was the moment that I that I kind of said, I'm I'm out. Like I'm not part of this, and I'm going to work every minute of every day to try to do everything I can to stop it. There were uh, two things um, that come to mind in hearing you talk about that. Uh, first, the the inability of the other candidates in that primary to figure out how to attack Donald. Because maybe it's just because I've known him forever, but he, as far as I'm concerned, is concerned, is the easiest person right. to take down a peg or to, you know, it's so easy to get under his skin. It's so easy to um, get him off balance mm-hmm. and get him defensive. And they just kept trying to play his game, which credit where credit is due, he's quite good at right. Um and now I, I kind of worry that, that that's what's happening with the Democrats and the Republicans, as, as we've just discussed. And then <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind, which I, it may not be the most important thing, but it just sort of adds to the, the stress and the anxiety and the demoralizing state we are often in, is that they, they, want, they kept picking the worst possible people. Yeah. Bannon, Steve uh-huh. Miller, Jeff Sessions, um, what's his name? Bill Barr. <laughs> I mean, the list right, is endless. Right. Jared Kirshner. I, we could we could go on forever. Uh, is that is that strategic or is that just because you know awful people like to hang out with other awful yeah, people? I was gonna say like that's a proximity thing, right? It, you know, this is like in reality, it's a very small group of people that were willing to attach themselves to, to this cancer. You know, and, and it was these kind of hanger on the, this, you know, they were previously the outcasts, Stephen Miller, Matt Schlapp, mm-hmm. Donald Lanka. These are Donald Lanka, people who bec- only because they have a last name is the only reason why they have any value in this world. They couldn't come out mm-hmm. and set up their own life. They had to be a parasite, much like their father. But when I looked at Donald when he came on the scene politically, you know, I, I grew up a, a big wrestling fan watching you know, WWF back in the day, now WWE. And 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 I always thought everything you need to know about Donald Trump is just watch an episode of Monday Night Raw. It's the same thing. That's, that's it's right. just I mean, that's where so other place in the world are you going to find a dude hopped up on his own testosterone, beating his chest, telling him how telling the world how great he is, professional wrestling and, and politics. And that's what frustrated me so much about the Republicans at the time and, and really their handlers and consultants. Like you guys are acting like this is a debate on the Senate floor debating procedure and policy you're up against you know stone cold steve austin okay like that's what you have to envision and if you want to beat him the way to do it is to take a steel chair and hit him over the head with it you know if i were ted cruz yeah. I, I always thought if you want to beat donald trump in one false swoop this is a guy who insulted your wife and your father if you are on a stage with him walk on over and knock him the fuck out and he will fall like a house of cards, and it will be over. Because that's, right. that's how you beat a bully. And that's what ultimately Donald is. He's the ultimate bully. And none of these Republicans, Rubio, Cruz, Graham, whoever, could muster the fortitude to just stand up for themselves the way anybody would if they were on the school you know, playground and dealing with someone like that. Mm-hmm. And now we look at you know the, the Democrats. Once they got through the primary— 
I feel like Democrats just believe, oh, he can't win. This is a dream come true. I remember there was that quote of, of one of the Clinton people saying it would be a dream if it were Donald will crush him. And all the conventional wisdom, well, look what happened. He body slammed y'all. And, and it wasn't really hard to see that coming, frankly. And so here we are now, seven years removed from that campaign, basically. And it's the same thing over again. And, and I feel like too many people in the media – in the party across still have not figured it out. And, and I, and it blows my mind, Mary, it really does. Somebody asked me earlier, um, what, what do we do? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> let's see. Um, I don't think there's anything we can do about the media, the mainstream media. I, well, you would know better than I, um, I think your, your perspective is, is probably clearer on this, but they seem to have decided that their their best strategy is to normalize mm -hmm. the deeply abnormal and dangerous. I'm not entirely sure why, um, but uh, I I don't think we can expect any help from them, which blows my mind too, because there can't be a fourth estate without a democracy. So, you know, you figure that they would at least... Yeah, be objective to the facts, but be pro-democracy, please. Um, and that does not seem to be happening. And then, uh, so that leaves us with the Democratic Party. Yeah. And get uh, getting back again to the fact that they don't seem to understand the threat. They don't seem to have learned the lesson. So what do you think? Well, first of all, let, let's start with where where you think we are. Are, are we um, on the road to having the Republicans be fascist? Are they already? They were auto a party of autocrats, you know, before January 6th. Right. I, I mean, I, I think now... they've already crossed that lexicon. Um, I think that yeah. when you are willing to look past a violent insurrection attempt on our capital, when you're willing to mislabel it, act of patriotism, when, you're, when, you, when your party passes a, a, you know, a, a document that says it was legitimate, you're gone. Yeah. There's no coming back. Legitimate like, political. You part. have crossed that did, Rubicon. Did it surprise you? Not not the resolution, because I think you know not, nothing should surprise us anymore. <laughs> um, did did the evolution, I guess we could call it, of the um, Republicans in Congress, uh, their attitude to January sixth? Did it did that surprise you? Because I I'm ashamed to admit that it did surprise it did. me, and I thought I was no. It, uh, yeah, I'll tell you. I think of all the things that were that, that was probably the most crushing to me personally was how the Republicans, you know, in the immediate minutes after January sixth, they responded like normal people. This is terrible. This has got to stop. This is Donald Trump's fault. Some of them even were bold enough to say in that second, and then they completely walked all of that back. And, and, you know, calling it just a, a tourist event and all of that. I'm like, understand that if those people had had their way, like, oh, y'all be dead right now. They, like, they, they didn't care who was who. They would have nope. gone after the lot of you. And when you're not willing to do the right thing and say the right thing, and it was your life that was literally in jeopardy, <laughs> like you are in harm's way. Like, why, you, are so, you are so far gone. And it really did surprise me, and, and, and maybe it shouldn't have, and maybe it was just like the last part of me that was like clinging to like, okay, maybe this is the point, the la the, the point that's yeah. too far, terrorism. Yeah, that should be that. You think that'd be enough? 
and it's not. And they're still lining up behind the guy and making excuses for him and, and you know, attacking people for having the temerity to try to want to get the facts about a terrorist event on our Capitol. I'm like, I, I give up. Like, you're gone. There, there is. And that's what gets me about the media. This insane clinging to both sides isms that they have yeah. this that in order to yeah. tell the story we have to tell the republican side and the democrat side that's right they're not it's not the same thing yep. they are not two two sides of the same coin anymore and and they're in their they're stupid ability to try to keep doing this they are doing a tremendous disservice to our country to like if democracy falls if the republicans get their way History will record that it happened while the media stood around and helped them write the playbook to do so. That's right. Yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of breathtaking. There was a, a moment when after the election, when Donald started spouting the big lie that the media did kind of stand up and call that lie that lie. Um, but when you think about how long it took them to do that, how long it took them to call racism, racism. They're never going to use the F word ever. And by normalizing, as you said, you know, by both sizing everything and, and pretending that everything is legitimate. The Democrats have to get their one minute, the Republicans get their minute and it's all legitimate. Um, it, it does, as you said, a disservice, but it also undermines the confidence of people, I think, who see what's happening. Right. And it's crazy making. Uh, there was an article recently saying that at this point in, in uh, his administration, Donald had given something like 92 interviews. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was taking Biden to task for not yep. giving more interviews. And the person writing that, I mean, the the gist of it was, well, okay, you want Biden to give 92 interviews and lie constantly? I mean, you've written you've, you've written about this. You have written about the media's incapacity to treat the dangerous as the dangerous. You know, not to not to pretend that Biden f- has followed a normal administration and that everything is business as usual. You know, you've also recent most recently written about the media's complete failures to give Biden credit. So it's like the guy can't do anything right. How do we grapple with that one? Yeah. Is it is it a question of democratic messaging or are we just like completely screwed? Well, I mean, and I'll tell you that, that it was so refreshing for me. It was, it was some it was an Associated Press story that that talked about Trump's 92 interviews in his first year of office. And I'm like, yeah, but he told like 35,000 lies. So are you really telling me that Biden would have been better off doing 92 interviews where he lied in all of them than not doing these grandstanding, self-promoting, non-step things? And all of those 92 interviews, by the way, Donald called y'all the enemy of the people. He That's said right. that you're the enemy to democracy. There were literally reporters getting death threats every day. There was a, a lot of fear amongst the press corps. You're telling me that you want to go back to that and Biden would be mm-hmm. better off doing that? You guys criticized the White House press briefing and who can sit in and who's not. They they stopped having them for crying out loud. Like, give me a break. And and the the 
when Biden became president, it's almost as if the media collectively went, okay, we're going to pretend like the last four years didn't happen. And we're going to judge Biden based on previous norms and and not actually reflect what's happened to the press corps and to the conversation about free press and democracy over the last four years. And it's an again, it's incredibly unfair to the president, to President Biden. Uh, It's also harmful. Again, you're just every time you do that. And I wrote this in a piece responding to that AP article heard it for the L.A. Times. I said every time you do this, you're doing the job for Republicans. You're helping them. I can tell you, Republicans, when they strategize, and they say this, the media's fairness doctrine is their best friend. It is their ally. It helps them do what they want to do. And it legitimizes the Republican line. And and I don't know. Democrats can have the best messaging in the world. It doesn't matter if every time that they say something, the media feels like they need to go get a quote from freaking Marjorie Taylor Greene to offset the quote from, from, from Democrat Congressman A. Uh, it, you know, and, yeah. and every time that there's a story about voter fraud or nonsense lawsuits challenging the last election, it doesn't help if three quarters of that article is regurgitating Republican conspiracy theories and nonsense. Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so we're up against that, and I don't know what the answer is to that, honestly. I, I, I do really appreciate, though, you're saying – it's really not the Democrats' fault for not having the best messaging because that that hit home to me in a way it hadn't before when um, I heard many journalists complaining that nobody knew what was in the Build Back Better bill. I'm like, maybe because you're not telling them. <laughs> and isn't that your job? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Come on. Because <laughs> I know as someone who gets these things, I got a ton of press releases and fact sheets and information about what's in these bills. I don't see that blanketing every newspaper and airways. It's like if you want to know what's in it and you're not happy yeah. with it, write about it. My God, I mean, nothing. you got nothing but air and opportunity here. So what are you waiting for? Yes. And, and that's, I believe, what you're getting paid for, to inform the people. <laughs> or maybe I'm wrong. But the, the what seems to me one of, one of the, the critically dangerous things about this situation with the media is it cuts both ways. On the one hand, as I said earlier, it demoralizes us because we see what's going on. We see that the New York Times writes a, an anti-Biden article and only interviews Republicans and um, or Republicans get the same amount of time and no pushback as the Democrats who always seem to get pushback. So our base kind of starts wondering, like, what's the point? And meanwhile, the Republican base gets energized because there must be something in it, right? If they're asking, if the media are asking if Donald is going to run again, then that must mean he should be able to, right? And it's that framing that I find so dangerous. Well, and, you know, one of the big uphill things for Democrats, the Republican Party is set up in a way where every day they have a 24-7 cable news network devoted exclusively to saying whatever they want, running interference for them, covering their talking points. Just it's propaganda. Let's call it for what it is. Democrats have no equivalent to that. You know, and, and I always get so annoyed when I hear people compare Fox News to MSNBC, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa! 
MSNBC, I don't know a single talent at MSNBC who starts their show with the mindset, I'm lying today. I'm going to misinform my viewers. I'm going to advance conspiracy right. theories. I'm not going to tell the truth. Those are the hallmarks of Fox News programming right now. Nobody at MSNBC does that. MSNBC Nobody. is at times, much to the frustration, that I think, of the Biden White House and the base, critical of this president. That doesn't happen at mm -hmm. Fox News. You're not allowed to do that at right. Fox News to be critical of their right. leader, Donald Trump. And so we don't have that type of programming at our disposal the way that the right does, uh, whether it's Fox News, whether it's Bannon's War Room podcast, which has become a, a, a destination if you want to run for office in the Republican Party, which should tell you everything that's wrong with the Republican Party, that that's the case. Uh, you know, de Democrats don't have those same type of destinations because we care about telling the truth. We care about context. We care about facts. We're okay with constructive criticism and analysis and thinking. These things are all enemies to the Republican Party. And so I, I do think that Democrats, it would be worth their while to think about ways to invest in platforms that can help them communicate directly to the base, directly to their audience, uh, without the filter of the, of the normal mainstream media, because Republicans sure as heck are doing that. Yeah, I um, I have a newsletter, and every week I have a feature called "Get the Fascists Off the List," <laughs> and I look at the <clears throat> Apple Podcasts, I look at the New York Times and Amazon bestsellers, I look at Substack, and it is stunning. As in, holy mm -hmm. shit, <laughs> there are no voices on the left breaking through. They dominate almost every single yeah. one of those spaces. Yes. Yeah. And it, it makes me think that there's really no off-ramp anymore for the Republican Party because I think they've made uh, the calculation that it's just about power now. Right. Which is why ideology doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that if they think Donald's a pig or whatever. They see this as possibly their last best opportunity to become – a permanent minority power. Right. I mean, ultimately, the Republican Party during the Bush years, the W. Bush years, had a choice. It was either one, embrace what Bush called compassionate conservatism. Bush, who was very pro um, comprehensive immigration reform, who was very, you know, for things that are that would now make you the enemy of the Republican Party. Um, right. The party could have embraced that and, and embraced what we would call big tent politics or, or not, or reject it. And, and uh, you know, we know what, what path they ultimately chose. And I think it's because they realize when all things are equal, there's more of us than there are of them. And, and right. when all things are equal, given that they'll never win another national election ever again. And so the only thing that they can do in order to try to win is to make sure that playing field isn't level. To make sure that this right. is why they're doing all of these anti-voter you know, suppression uh, laws throughout the states to try to, to you know, dictate turnout because if it's equal, they'll lose. And they've boxed themselves into the point of no return where now you know, the Republican Party, the way it's going, the demographics in this country, it, it is an inevitability. The Republican Party is really going to be a third party in America in the long run. Their only hope of staving that off is to become an autocratic regime. Which is exactly where we're headed, uh, again, because 
the Democrats keep playing by the rule book that doesn't exist anymore because the Republicans blew it up. Right. You know, I would um, say that, that, that it, it's, it's great oratory. Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high. That sounds great. It's a beautiful sentiment that will get us killed. You know, it's interesting. I, I never interpreted it the way everybody else seems to. So I guess I'm wrong, but I interpreted that as don't stoop to their level. We don't need to lie. We don't need to cheat. We don't need to steal, but fight like your life depends on it because it does, you know, pull out the brass knuckles because our fight is the righteous fight. So I didn't realize that everybody took that as be a doormat. Um, <laughs> but that seems to what that seems to be what's happened. And I don't um, be, because honestly, we going high, meaning play nice, you know, treat them decently, even though they're trying to kill us all or whatever. That is going to destroy us anyway. Um, stooping to their level, we become like them, then what's the point of winning? Uh, so it's only by holding on to what makes our uh, what makes our willingness to fight so hard for democracy that it What's best in us, mm -hmm. honestly, I don't mean to be sappy, but, you know, we're talking about making sure that Americans are paid a living wage. We're making sure uh, uh, that everybody can vote and have their vote counted, et cetera, et cetera. So we are on the side of, of justice here. Um, that's worth fighting for. So that's the part I don't get. It's like it does, it, you don't have to be polite. Jesus Christ, They're, they are just trying to destroy us. They want to destroy us. What more evidence do we need? And the difference is they're not doing it. I mean, in some cases, they're doing it with violence. Um, you know, just wait till the Canadian trucker thing right. metastasizes uh, and comes over here. But in terms of voting rights, they're doing it through the courts. Right. So now it's Constant, it's enshrined uh, by the Supreme. It is constitutional to deny all black mm -hmm. people in Alabama the right to have their vote count. You know, how do we how do we make that message come through? This is, that this this is worth fighting and, for with everything we and have. This is, and, and this is part of my frustration here. It's like when I say fight fire with fire, you know, wh I mean like what would Republicans do? So good example. This recent uh, revelation that Donald would tear up documents and the National Archives had to get like 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago that, 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 that Trump illegally seized uh, and took with him. If this were a Democrat and Republicans had the reins of power, I can tell you, having worked at the Oversight Committee for five years during the Obama years, there would be hearings. There would be subpoenas. Yep. There would be – you know, at, at peak Benghazi. There were six congressional committees simultaneously investigating Benghazi and Hillary Clinton's emails. There were more than 33 hearings held on that topic alone, even up to the, the October of 2016, where they had three hearings that week. That's what I mean when I say fire, fire. We have the reins of power. And yet for the last year, I couldn't tell you what the hell we've done with them in Congress. We have a tremendous amount of oversight authority. We just came off of the most corrupt presidency in the history of our country, and that's just the stuff we know about that happened. 
imagine all the shit that went down that we don't know about that we could get into at every level. Why are we not putting on every single day an oversight show? Because that's what Republicans did, whether it was Operation Fast and Furious and holding Eric Holder in contempt of Congress, whether it was Benghazi, whether it was IRS targeting and holding Obama-era officials in contempt of Congress. Republicans made a conscious decision that oversight would be their shield because while they were fighting amongst each other and battling the Tea Party, oversight was the one area that united the entire spectrum of the Republican Party. Everybody was for it. The base loved it. They raised a ton of money off of it. The media loved it. They got daily headlines, a daily show to cover. And Democrats haven't done that. And, you know, and I can't for the life of me understand why. And so when I say, you know, yeah, when they go low, we go high. But what we need to do is punch them right in the face. It's by Absolutely. using the majority power that we have right now to hold Republicans accountable, make Republicans answer very uncomfortable questions. Make Jim Jordan sit there and say, you know, you said that what Hillary Clinton did was a crime. How do you feel about what Donald Trump did? Why not? It, yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I'm in total agreement with you um, because it, at this point, it feels like self-defense. And if somebody is threatening your life or the lives of those you love, you don't ask them politely not to do that. You you rip them to shreds right. if you can. I think about COVID and, for you a know, second. You know, I always said the first hearing Repub- Democrats should have had when Biden became president wasn't a hearing about January 6th wasn't a hearing about COVID recovery. It was a hearing with the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Mike Pence, and ask him, what the fuck did you guys do for the last year that resulted in 500,000 right. dead Americans at the time? They have not yep. done that. What was Jared Kushner doing? He was supposedly running the Coronavirus White House Task Force. While the president was telling us to take bleach, what in the world were you guys doing to stave off this terrible, terrible pandemic? And imagine how differently the optics would be for Biden if they had actually done all of that and held accountable what happened before him. A few months ago, I wrote about what was happening with the gender sex committee. And I was like, that's great. There absolutely needs to be one. But why isn't there a COVID Mm -hmm. committee? It turns out there is. Yeah. (laughs) Who Who knew? knew? What have they been doing? Who knew? I I don't know. But... um, that we're in my view we're talking about maliciously willful mass yes. murder because they they made a political calculation that preferencing the economy over saving lives was what was going to get them elected and you know this is this is um, hard for me to say because it's so awful but if they had done the opposite donald may probably would have won mm-hmm. And we would now be living in a fascist dictatorship. So it's it's kind of mind blowing. So um, at least hold him accountable for the worst thing. That is the Mm -hmm. worst of the many egregious, horrific, criminal things he's done. That's the worst. And and I I noticed the worst is isn't the worst thing is the death, but also the way he divided us against each other during that time of terror and isolation. So you're right. What, what is it going to take? What, what else do we need to know to right. get the Democrats to move? You know, and one of the things, you know, I've become more optimistic as of late, uh, seeing the work that the January 6th committee is doing, seeing how they have, you know, 
people don't often realize there are a lot more people who have cooperated with this committee than haven't. Uh, and people very close to the president. I think that the hearings that will go on this spring will be very damaging for this president uh, and for the Republican Party overall. Uh, yeah, that that that's the blueprint. Um, that that's going to be substantial and, and potentially uh, completely narrative shattering. Uh, you know, I always say people who talk about what's going to happen in November. I'm like, you know, that's a long way from now. And the one thing that we've yeah. learned is whatever we're talking about in February will not bear any resemblance to what we're talking about in November. Uh, so everybody chill out and take a deep knee and, 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 and take a breath. Uh, I, I think yeah. that Republicans actually peaked too early in this cycle. Uh, I think that they peaked mm-hmm. in December, January, and they have nowhere to go but down. And and we're yeah. starting to see some of these cracks just in their own internal fighting. They're spending more time talking about Liz Cheney and a, an election they already lost than talking about the next election mm-hmm. that, in theory, they should be poised to win. Uh, and, and that right. and, and Donald's fragile ego, which makes it impossible for him to accept failure and defeat but continue to relitigate the 2020 election, I think that's going to be a death nail in their prospects for November. And we know if Mike Pence is telling the truth, the very simple truth that no, he could not overturn the results of a free and fair election in which almost 200 million Americans voted, it's because he knows something. It's not because he cares. It's not because he's standing up for the truth. It's because he knows what's coming down the pike. And I think that explains the hysteria also around Cheney and Kinzinger. Um, There's no way that they're not aware of what's happening behind the scenes and the the freight train Mm -hmm. that's coming right at them, hopefully. And what also... um, is, is a good sign because you're right. There's no one person. Remember how much we were counting on Robert Mueller? <laughs> well, how did that work out for us? It didn't work out for us at all. Um, you know, so I have no idea what's going on at the DOJ. I don't know if Merrick Garley's doing anything. I have no idea. I think he des- we deserve some transparency from him, but maybe he's making a case. I don't know. Doesn't matter in this sense. Those January 6th committee is going to tell a story. Mm-hmm. They're going to televise it every night. That's right. And it's going to help the American people understand in a way that isn't cut and dried, but that, that's relevant and that's compelling. I mean, you, you saw the, the hearing with the four officers mm-hmm. and you saw the hearing um, with the committee just sort of laying it out. I mean, was that not um, a master class? Yep. And how to make and this case. tells you to the I think short sightedness of Kevin McCarthy not to seat any members uh, on that committee and surrendering yeah. that those slots to Nancy Pelosi to 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 put in Kinzinger and Cheney because when these hearings happen and I sure as hell hope they have them in prime time on Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday nights and that they're simulcast yep. on every broadcast network and, and and cable and streaming and everywhere I hope that uh, McCarthy sits there going oh shit. There is no Jim Jordan up there. There's there's no Matt Gates. There's no defender of Donald Trump. It is just wall to wall them beating the shit out of him over and over and over again. And we know that Trump's going to be watching from Mar-a-Lago, losing his mind, that there's no one there defending him. 
and no mechanism to do that. And it's going to – I think it could be a, a, a devastating blow. And you're right about the fact that what Pence is doing isn't because he's altruistic, because he's such a good guy who cares about America. He knows. <laughs> he knows what his right-hand guy who already testified behind closed doors to the committee – he knows what he gave up. And and, and mm-hmm. if Pence is doing this this publicly, it means he, he thinks he has a pre, is, as close to uh, a potential body blow to Trump as there is that, that that's already been delivered. Yeah. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. I don't. I don't think um, the Republican Party is going to um, act like they're in disarray, because <laughs> um, you know, God forbid, the media describe the Republicans that way. But it does. Um, it does show us that this may wind up very differently yeah. from how we are. We fear it mm-hmm. might. And I think something that's been missing, well, for the entirety of Donald's life, but also for this, the entirety of his administration, is accountability. Right. Um, and that's why, you know, the DOJ, I, I feel, really does need – because we know crimes have been right. committed. We know it. We're seeing evidence of it every day. The, the Presidential Records Act, the Hatch Act – the uh, try, trying to steal the election, a vast conspiracy to try to steal the election. But legal time crawls on its hands right. and knees. So well, I also I don't think I the also DOJ make the point that going after a former president is something that's never happened before. And so right. if you if In you America. don't do that right, you only get one shot at this. So you got to have right. dead to rights. And, 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 and I would like – the optimist in me, whatever part of me still exists in that realm, would like to believe that <laughs> they are building a case, but but they're not, nothing is going to come out until they drop the – until they have them in cuffs basically. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how you right. have to do it given the circumstances and, and the opposition that that will fuel, the potential violence that that could create. You have got to have it mm-hmm. stone cold, dead to rights, and the fact that we haven't heard anything about it. Is actually a weird good sign to me, as someone who worked in government, who knows how government works. It's like, good. If if they're not saying anything and no one knows anything, that means something's happening. I hope you're right. Um, and if you are, as you said, I, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to find anything for quite some time because they need to nail this right. thing. And if I'm wrong, let me down. just say, if I'm um, wrong, then the Justice Department should just demand itself and never exist ever again because there's no point. I agree. Yeah, because, you know, we already know that there's there are two ju- two justice uh, systems in this country that would suggest that there's not. It would be um, the message would be have enough power, commit enough horrific crimes and you'll right. be fine as long as you're a white. Man. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it, so, if committing a coup isn't yeah. enough to get you arrested in America, then uh, I don't know what is. A coup, mass murder, you know, covering everything up. It, there are many, many things. But on the potentially, um, there's good news at the DOJ. We don't know. But what we do know is that there are plenty of other cases. And I, I'm curious to know, we've got New York, we've got Georgia, we've got Michigan, we've got some um, personal lawsuits happening now. Out of all the cases you're aware of, what do you think is the one that might pack the biggest punch oh, and have the most sure, impact on, on SDNY. 
Um, the, the same uh, thing that okay. brought down Al Capone, financial crimes, tax evasion. We know because that's black and white. Like your tax documents hmm. are your tax. There's a reason why this guy hasn't want to release his tax documents despite pl- promising that he would. Like it's not going to yeah. add up. We know that this guy's a cheat. We know that he's a fraud. We know that he shouldn't have gotten the, the loans that he got uh, from the various institutions. We know that the paperwork when he got those loans wasn't accurate. It's like financial crimes. That's black and white stuff. Whether you were Bernie Madoff mm-hmm. or whoever, it's like that's going to get you. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, the most black and white legal case to go after him on where there is just no denying it's his signature on his tax return, like is going to be that. Because if you follow the right. money, just like any corrupt enterprise, that's ultimately where the bodies are buried. Right. Because you can't claim to be a brilliant businessman and claim not to know what you were signing right. because you just don't know anything. Right. I mean, he'll try right. for sure. Um, the, the the problem with SDNY is I imagine they are drowning in so many documents mm-hmm. that, it again, it's going to take a, a while. Yeah. I mean, it has been going on for a while, but, you know, uh, who knows? Um, I was also thinking, though, that uh, another quite straightforward case seems to be in uh, Georgia. Yeah. Well, he made the calls to the Secretary of State, the threats. Um, I guess I'm of the mindset that ultimately – it would almost be better for our country if he, if what he went down for had nothing to do with the election, actually, and had to do mm. with things that it's like, oh, you're a fraudster. You cheated on your taxes. Doesn't matter if you won or lost the election. No one cares about it. Like you did A, B, and C, and here's the documents, and th- these are the penalties attached to that, and you're going to jail, and that's the way it goes. Um, I, I, it, would, it would be a much cleaner hit. Because that that's not as political. It, you know, mm. when, when, when he gets charged for something involving an election, well, that's going to turn into a rallying cry. That's going to turn into, well, this yeah. is why you need to vote for me so that I can pardon myself because this is political, blah, 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 abuse of power, going after your political enemies. You know, you know I won the election. They're going after me for claiming to win the election that you know I won. It just continues on and on and on. It gets litigated in the political process. Um, part of me agrees with you. I think all of me should agree with you, but that's so frustrating oh, yeah. because it o- always seems to be that um, the decision is to let things slide I guess to, I, to I, keep the peace. To or- me, what would cause him the most harm, the most injury is to pierce this veneer that you're a good businessman, that you're so brilliant, that you're yeah. so. But no, no, I want the words "tax cheat," "fraud." I want that affixed to your to your you know tombstone, and that could be a way to do it. it totally, but Kurt, how many times? How how much information have we already had that he's those things? He's failed at everything he's done. And the only way he's quote unquote succeeded is to cheat or to have it handed to him. We know yeah. this. So what what is it that that keeps people from seeing the most fundamental truths well, about who this person is? Ultimately, like I think it's just the old adage like success breeds success. Uh, guy yeah. was on TV for many years with a successful television show. You know. Uh, mm. One of the, he became one of the most recognizable, visible figures in the world, 
you know, one of the most mm-hmm. recognizable, visible names in the world. Not going to take that away from the guy. If anything, if the one thing he's been good at, he's a, <laughs> a hell of a self-promoter. P.T. Barnum got nothing on this guy. Yep. Uh, um, Absolutely. You know, and then he became the president of the United States. It's like, uh, you know, yeah. these things, uh, they happened. Um, and and the, they're etched in stone in history. Um, and people associate those type of milestones with success. Uh, that's why I think it that's needs true. to come out and, and you know, and prosecute like, no, you're a cheat. You're a Ponzi scheme. You're, you're Tiger King. You know, you're, 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 you know, you're not, you're not, you know, Rockefeller, you're, you're, you're Tiger King. And, and that's how yeah. I think it needs to be presented. That would be safer for sure. And compelling, um, in a way, some of this other stuff might not be, because again, it could be it could be painted as being political or partisan or what have you, um, and and also it it avoids um, a situation in which the Republicans can take back control of the narrative, because I think that's that's one of the the most awful things that's happened. Mm-hmm. They had so many opportunities to take an uh, an off ramp away from right. him, and time after time with the the horrific immigration policies and uh, the big lie and now the second big lie about the the in armed insurrection about against our own government by the leader of the right. government um they have refused and i think that's that's why they have so cemented the base mm-hmm. um into believing these false narratives so i think you're right i, I, I just to, don't even deal with that. Right. Stuff. And also, let the January sixth committee do its job, and you know. And then also with SDNY, we'll let the tax- like he can't pardon himself out of that because that's state crimes. Right. Yeah. And he can't pardon any other people right. who may or may not be related right. to him. So that's why I say it's the, it's kind of the least satisfying, but it's the cleanest shot. Um. Yes, but. There are plenty of other people who can be held accountable for the oh, other yeah. crimes. and they all should. And they all should, and hopefully they all will. And, you know, I'd like to think that the D- if the DOJ is, is reluctant to go uh, after Donald, no matter how compelling the case, I don't think they would have the same reluctance in going after anybody else in the executive branch, because why? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not if, – if – all right, Donald got – caught up in tax fraud that he's been committing for 40 years fine we're gonna we're going but we are going to deal seriously with the other members who um participated in funding organizing and perpetuating um the insurrection so yeah unsatisfying but making sure that he's never in power making sure that he's n- never able to amass mm-hmm. wealth i i, I can live definitely with that, I definitely because is it? This is the other thing that's kind of fascinating about the Republican Party right now, to the extent that you could say it's fascinating. I don't. I can't see anybody taking the mantle from him. Because one thing you can say about Donald is he has charisma. Yeah. Not to me. Not to you. But if have you met? I him? have not had the misfortune of meeting him. Thankfully, you're quite lucky. But if you did, you would see. That there is that oh, yeah, yeah, charismatic. One of my dearest friends spent some a good amount of time with him a few years back before he was president, and he told me it's like, you know, he and he loathes him, but he said like after meeting him, I get it. 
because he can be incredibly charming. He can make you feel like you matter in in a a one-on-one setting. He is Mm -hmm. surprisingly disarming, actually, uh, when you're with Mm -hmm. him. And so hearing that feedback, I'm like, okay, I, I see that. I get that. And he's really good at, at, at making people make micro concessions. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll say, isn't this the greatest house? Isn't this the greatest plane? And you don't want to be rude. So sure. you agree yeah. with him. And that, you know, it's just these like these tiny things. But you would within a 30 seconds, you would see right through him. Unfortunately, there are tens and tens of millions of people <laughs> who haven't been able to see through him. But is there anybody on the Republican horizon? Who comes close? No, and, and, and you know, I've always, you know, and this kind of speaks more to my the entertainment side of my brain. If you're trying to be the next person, I want to be the next Sting. I want to be the next Mick Jagger. You're never going to get there. You're never going to get there. People know a, a right. copycat and a phony from the real thing. All of these people, right. the Ron DeSantis's, the Greg Abbotts, the, the people who are pretending to try to be Donald Trump. Everybody knows that they're not. Everyone knows that they're faking yeah. it. And that's not going to ultimately if, – if Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow from the world, that would be amazing. If that were to happen, <laughs> nobody would be excited about, <laughs> oh, wow, wow, that Ron DeSantis is our guy now. Like let, That enthusiasm right. would not be there for this guy, nor for Mike Pence or Nikki Haley or all of these other pretenders. You have to be a genuine – personality say what you want about donald and there's a lot to say like he is who he is like all the time unabashedly like this is who he is oh and he's only like, that he's not an act he's the it's same just, this is who he in is. every context yeah. which is creepy and deeply <laughs> psychologically disordered if you're the same with your your spouse your children and a crowd of fifty thousand, something's not right there that's a sign that's of serious pathology right. that's right but it's authentic to right. him. And I think, though, that's part of their desperation. They know yeah. that. They know they can't, you know, capture lightning in a bottle twice. I don't they know can't. what the expression is. <laughs> but they can't replicate it. They can't. So they have to hang that's on right. to him. And so I think that all of these people who are pretending, they only get away with it because the real thing is right there and, and kind of almost protects them from being fully exposed. Once that's gone, they're exposed. And no one's going to buy it because it's yeah. a cheap act off of an already cheap act. And I don't think that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think we we sort of started off in a dark place because it's, t- it's been a tough – well, okay, five years. <laughs> but there's a, something about the last few days, last week, the Supreme Court yesterday, you know, some very, very difficult uh, news to swallow. But – I actually feel better. Um, I have a final question to ask you to wrap up. But before that, if you don't mind, I, I know I'm keeping you, but I, I'm fascinated by the country music <laughs> thing with you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's, it's um, I don't know, who would have known? Like if, if you see you on a, a, an MSNBC head, you would never know Fair. that you've got this massive crush on country music. How did that start? Well, and what have you been doing with it? Because you have a really cool it's website. It's very random. Um, I, I fully admit that. Uh, back in 2011, a friend of mine had an extra ticket to a country music concert here in Northern Virginia and asked me to go. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, yeah, why not? Live music sounds fun. Uh, and it, it was a guy named Eric Church was performing that night. 
and I just fell in love. It was like the energy, uh, the authenticity, the just it was just something I'd never experienced before, and it really spoke to me. And so I just started becoming a fan of of country music, going to live concerts, etc. Flash forward to 2016, and it kind of ties into what we've been talking about. The world is terrible. There is no hope. It's incredibly depressing. I need something else to think about in my mental space to put me in a happy place. So I start for fun a daily morning email tip sheet called a morning hangover about what went on in country music that day. Much to my shock, it catches on in Nashville and starts being passed around music row and all the music labels and management and PR companies and all that. And then I just start getting invited to shows and events and, you know, going to Nashville once in a while. And it just kind of kept growing and growing to the point where now here we are in 2022, we're having actually our very first live event we're hosting uh, in Vegas at the House of Blues on Sunday, March 6th, on the eve of the ACM Awards. Uh, we're having this massive concert event, oh, which wow. I'm so excited about. Um, and it's just become this happy place for me uh, where I kind of tune out politics. I'm just present in that moment. I'm at a concert. I'm not on my phone. I'm just loving it. But it also has been interesting because I think it informs me and gives me a perspective as a consultant to Democrats, frankly, that is so unique and different because I'll tell you, I guarantee you I am like the only person in the Democratic Party who routinely spends time with this crowd. You know, I, I always tell sure. people who don't understand what happened in 2016, come to a country music concert and in 20 minutes you'll figure it out because it's not just about – MAGA and build the wall slogans like there was a there's something else going on here that Democrats mm -hmm. have a blind spot to that Republicans have tuned right. into. And, and, and I, and I yep. say this like if Democrats want to be successful in the long run, they need to understand this. I'm not saying they have to cater to it all the time, I'm not saying that they have to morph into something that they're not, but they do need to understand it. And I'm like, why don't you coin the term red dirt Democrat? Why not start mm. at least you – know, Pete Buttigieg did this really well in the primary. He went to Nashville, did a whole day there, which, which mm -hmm. I helped behind the scenes put together. And he made the point of – he went on country radio, which no Democrat candidate has ever done before, and was just saying, like, listen, right. if I don't talk to you, I'm only giving you one choice to vote for, and that's the Republican. You're at least going to hear mm -hmm. from me and have to make a choice because right. you can't beat something with nothing. And too often I feel like Democrats disregard what we call politely the flyover states, uh, and I think they do that to their peril. And you know, when mm -hmm. I'm at a concert and I'm looking around and I see people who look like me, people who are black, who are white, who are old, who are young, who are there with their kids, who are teenagers, college, I see a, a, a room of 10,000 people singing along to the same song at the same time, not giving a crap who's you know, red or blue or Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. They're just connecting based on music. And I can tell you, the artists that are singing, they're not all Republican. The, 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 the country right. music has a very progressive streak, and it has for a long time. People like Dolly Parton, mm -hmm. you know, people like Loretta Lynn. You know, people like the checks. Emily yeah, Harris. Like, you know, there is a deep rooted progressiveness in country music. If you listen to it, that's always been there. And Johnny Cash. Yeah, exactly. Willie Nelson, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Farm Aid. It, uh, you know, it's like it's all right there. Yeah. And, you know, right now we're seeing, you know, black artists like Jimmy Allen and Kane Brown take off. We're seeing openly gay artists like T.J. Osborne take off, win awards selling out arenas 
you know, we're seeing conversations happen in country. Mickey Guyton's performing the national anthem at the Super Bowl this year. It's like we're seeing all of these progressive voices come forward, being honest about their story, something you could not have imagined 20 years ago, an openly out country music right. artist succeeding. That wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And so, right. I, I, you know, country music is the, the, the soundtrack of America's story, good and bad. And there's something mm-hmm. about that that really appeals to me. There's a great book that Tim McGraw co-wrote with John Meacham called Songs of America that kind of dives into this. And I recommend anybody like take a chance on it. It's, it's a really terrific read. Um, you know, but you know, I, I, from a political standpoint, I'm like Democrats, you would do well to understand and embrace some of this. But then for me just personally, like it's just nice to have this other space away from all the ugliness that's universally positive yeah. that I get to have fun and do fun things with and promote artists that I believe in, that I'm a fan of, give them a platform they may not otherwise have. And, and it blows me away that to this day that this community and it really is a, a community has embraced me and, you know, ha- has welcomed me into their fold and, and elevated me. And and that says so much about what you're, you're talking about. If you automatically put up the barrier, there is no, discussion of commonality. There is no way to find accommodating each other's differences, what have you. So, you know, you didn't just find your happy place. You, you, you became a force to be reckoned with in this very vibrant culture that is much more complex than people like me <laughs> give it credit for sometimes. I mean, honestly, part of it is that it's, I, I like some country music, but it's not really my thing. But I respect it, you know. I mean, some of the most brilliant artists are are country musicians. Um, and if you take that approach, if you if you use that as a way in, then you're already standing in allegiance with yeah. people, right? And that's what's so cool right. about it. What you I mean, you're doing? Music, it's like there's just there is more that we have in common than than divides us. And when I see, you know, I think about there's a great Brad Paisley song called American Saturday Night. That if you don't, and the surface, oh, just another Saturday night, hooray, you know, let's toast beer. But the lyric, and I've watched this in every city you could think of, red or blue, doesn't matter. You know, I'm sitting out there and I watch people sing along. And one of the lines is, you know, everywhere has something they're known for. Usually it washes up on our shores, Little Italy next to Chinatown, sitting there side by side, live from New York. It's a song about diversity. It's a song about immigration. And I watch these redneck hillbillies in Kentucky, Alabama, South Carolina, cheer and sing every word to that song. And I go, wow. Isn't that something that all of these people who I know voted for Donald Trump are singing and celebrating a song about diversity? That's interesting. There's something there that we need to tap into. Yeah. Well, I I feel really grateful to have you (laughs) on our side of things. I have one more question. It's sort of a two-part question, and I promise I'll let you go. But I think it is important, and especially given what you were just talking about, which I found really moving and motivating. Um, What in the... The context of the darkness that we're living through. Um, what gives you hope and how do you hang on to it? What gives me hope is the next generation that comes after us. You know, I, I, I've had chances to interact with, with students, college kids a lot of times. And I think to myself, man, you guys are so much more ahead of the game than I was when I was their age. Um, the world in which they grew up and one that where you do know not just one, but a, a number of people who, who live different lifestyles who come from different backgrounds. We live in a much more diverse world than, than the one that I came up in and the one that you came up in. 
And with each generation, mm -hmm. there is more progress and there isn't a bigger appetite for progress and adjusting social norms. And the, the, my source of inspiration is always with that next generation. And anytime I get to talk to yeah. them, you know, I've done, you know, guest lectures with, you know, students and from Georgetown to Duke to you name it. And, and I'm always, I always come away feeling so positive about the world because these kids are so bright and they're so smart and, mm -hmm. and they, they have in them the ability to make the world that they want to live in. And now there are so many tools, frankly, for younger people. I mean, we talk about the terribleness of social media and Lord knows there's a lot of truth there, but there's also another side of that, which is you could be mm -hmm. a kid living in a one stoplight town and you have now a portal to a much bigger world than you would have otherwise. Right. You get to see what kids your age are doing in whether it's Manhattan or India or Dubai or China. Yeah. It's like it's a bigger world because of that, and it's accessible, and it's right there on your phone every day. And having yeah. that gives me hope. Uh, I, I, I don't find a lot of faith and the grown-ups that we have right now, if you will, the people that are in office right now, that that yeah, that, right that leaves me uh, hopeless at times. But I think about who's going to come after them, and that, that that's yeah. that's my inspiration. That's where I find it. That's great, and and it it's especially given the hand we've dealt them, it is yeah. impressive. It's like that they're they rising to determined. The they are resilient. They're at times insufferably annoying, but, but yeah, it's like when you don't know what you don't know, that, that also is a shield. And I, I'm glad that we have a generation that's like that, who thinks that, you know, they can, I mean, I look at right now, there's a debate going on about whether congressional staff should unionize. Uh, and, and, and I'm of the mindset that they absolutely should, by the way, having been a former staffer and how terrible that place is. Um, the fact mm -hmm. that that conversation is happening now and it's being spearheaded because an account on Instagram called Dear uh, Dear White Staffers started collecting all of these horror stories about how staff are mistreated. Like that's where it came from. And here <laughs> it is where the Speaker of the House is being asked whether you support this, where the, the Kevin McCarthy is being asked whether you support this. Wow. It's like this is gaining some steam and it happened because of an Instagram account. That's what gives me hope. That's really that cool. type of change. Yeah. Yeah. And talking to you gives me hope. Seriously, I learned so much from you. I it's very calming <laughs> despite the you know, you the know horrors. I'm make you go to uh, so with me sometime. I'm I will right. go. We're gonna I do won't this. wear cowboy boots. No, you don't have to do that. But, <laughs> we'll, we'll draw the line there, but you're coming. I think that would be a bad idea. I would are you kidding? I would love it. Um that would be fantastic. Uh it cuz it is. It's that is the kind of thing that I just love that idea. Um, music, art is is where it's at. It is what brings us together. And it also makes it it's the whole point, right? <laughs> of of civilization is is to aspire to these things and to use it as a unifying uh as a unifier is especially in these times, is just very um moving. So thank you for that. Carp Bardella, thank you for being here and spending so much time with me. Uh, where can we find you on uh, Twitter, etc.? Uh, you can find me at Kurt Bardella, K-U-R-T-B-A-R-D-E-L-L-A. -L -L and if you want to follow my country music adventures, at Morning Hangover on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Awesome. Kurt, thank you so much again. Uh, thank you for having me.
And now I get to answer some of your questions. I love hearing from you guys. So if you do have anything you want to ask me, please send an email to mary at politicon.com and I will get to as many of your questions as I can. Uh, Today, first up, we have a question from Anne in Vancouver, Canada. Comey said something to the effect of Donald is a horrible guy. Let New York get him. He'll go to jail for those crimes. Comey was basically asking for people to forget about the contents of the Mueller report. I get the feeling that the powers that be don't want all the info about Donald's past made public. The FBI, DOJ, that Donald was an informant, and either they don't want that information out or can't. Do you think that's why they've not pursued the contents in the Mueller report to charge Donald? Um, I, You know, I've heard that rumor before that Donald uh, was an informant because of his Russian connections or something. But I, I, there's no way for me to know whether or not that's true. Um, I think, first of all, James Comey is um, way too impressed with himself. Uh, <laughs> the fact that that guy thinks that anybody wants to hear what he has to say anymore it just is a testament to the absolute enormity of his ego. Um, I but there's nothing he can do. You know, he doesn't have any power to decide what happens. I mean, he can he can give us his terrible opinion um, because you know it always it always seems to be that institutionalists like Comey uh, are, tell us that if the country wants to heal, we need to let uh, the powerful bad guys go unpunished so we can move ahead. And I, I of course completely disagree with that. As for the DOJ, we don't know anything. Um, I would appreciate it if Mer- Merrick Garland were a little more transparent because I think we have a right to know what, if anything, is happening. But we just don't know. Um, so Mueller, the one thing Mueller did a very good job of was laying out the case. Whether or not the DOJ picks it up is entirely up to Merrick Garland, and we just are going to have to wait and see as frustrating as that is. Uh, From Dan in Manhattan, New York City. Um, There was a recent event at which Donald was booed for promoting vaccines. Of course, the right has had two years to dig into their anti-vax stance, and it is understandably too late to reverse course. But I wonder, if Donald had come out strongly in favor of proven vaccines early on, do you think his base would have complied? How would you suppose the progressive message could be promoted in deep red communities where the only media consumed is so strongly aligned with fascism? Um, as to the first question, yes, if Donald had come out in favor of vaccines, every single person in this country would be vaccinated right now. It it's just goes without saying. Unfortunately, um, he was telling people to drink bleach and take ivermectin and um, what something about UV lights that they were supposed to put in places that should not go into the human body. So um, people do, people on that side listen to him. And that's, that was the, the travesty and the tragedy of his approach to COVID. Every single person, there would have been no qualms if he had said, wear a mask, if he had worn a mask, social distance, I need to shut down the country for six weeks. And it, it would have been done. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, by the time he got around to saying, 
that vaccines are good. It, he, he lost control of that narrative and he knows it. So he hasn't really been saying it very much, if at all. Um, from, oh, there was a second part to that question um, about how do we get the message out in red states? Well, I think we just had an amazing conversation with Kurt Bardella that answered that. Um, you know, we need to meet each other at our commonalities, not our differences. You know, if we go in ready to fight about the things we disagree with, we're not going to make any progress. So I'm not saying that there's, it's going to be a miracle and suddenly we all, we love country music. So everybody's going to be a Democrat or something. Um, but it is a, it is an opportunity to get to know each other, uh, in a, in a way we typically don't get to know people who live in the reddest of red places. Um, from Brian in Canada, we in Canada, for the most part, are appalled that a madman like Donald managed to get so far. So what happens to America if the bad Republicans go to prison? One party left. Is this constitutionally legal? Also, have you been covering any of the truckers revolt here? It started coincidentally after Donald's recent rally. Um, as for the first part, no, the, the Republican Party will... Well, I, I don't want to say always, but, you know, it's going to stay a viable party because we do need at least two political parties. Um, I would like for it to be burned to the ground and be reinvented. Um, I would like sane people who used to be Republicans, you know, lead lead that charge. Um, but at least for the foreseeable future, I want it to be a considerably weakened party. Because as far as I'm concerned, they've lost the right to have a say in how we govern ourselves. Um, but there's no way to know how things are going to shake out in 2022 and certainly no way to know how things are going to shake out in 2024. Uh, let's put it this way. It, it will be interesting. Uh, okay. As for the trucker revolt, um, I mean, I, I think it was just a coincidence. I don't think it had anything to do with Donald. Um it is really troubling, though, um, because that is going to be replicated here. And those aren't protests. Those, those are destructive acts, illegal acts that are going to have a massively negative impact on their fellow citizens. And all for what? Because they don't want to get a vaccine. It's kind of it's. This is the part I still have a really hard time wrapping my head around. Like, what is so different about the COVID vaccine? You know, we've all had tetanus shots. We've all had an MMR. I, I'm just, um, I'm just not understanding it. And, and I'm, I'm not sure why we haven't been able to get through to people because it's so logical. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the problem. We can't lose, use logic here because the right has gotten far too good at just, you know, playing on people's fears and um, making them terrified that something is being taken away from them. Like, I guess their right to die from a horrible virus. But it is a really troubling uh, development in Canada. And one of the most depressing things about it was the fact that the Canadian government has put out a warning against foreign interference. And they're talking about interference coming from America. Like that, that's how far the Republican Party 
in this country has fallen. So it's going to be um, an interesting couple of weeks on that front to see how how far it spreads. Um, Bannon speaking directly to Donald, saying when the GOP takes back the House, they'd name him Speaker. Would Donald see it as a real option for him to pursue his agenda or revenge? Do you think this can be taken seriously? Uh, that's from Carol. I don't know. Um, I mean, he can be named Speaker of the House. Anybody could be named Speaker of the House. You could. I could. You don't have to be an, uh, an elected official, which is very weird, but it's true. So, you know, if um, the Republicans won back the House, they could they could appoint him Speaker, and in which case he would be the third most powerful person in the country, uh, second in line to the presidency, I think it's highly unlikely. One, it would be a massive step down. It would be a demotion. <laughs> um, and I don't what, you think Donald's going to show up <laughs> in the Capitol building every day? I don't think so. Um, I think it's, it's just a way to uh, motivate the base. Um, but to be completely honest, uh, I thought the Democrats should have made Hillary Clinton Speaker of the House. So, you know, it's not just the right that uh, can be delusional attempts. <laughs> um, okay, from Jennifer. Why isn't Garland going after Donald? Uh, it occurred to me that it wouldn't phase Donald to threaten Garland's family members or Garland himself. Does this explain the reluctance to go after an obvious criminal? I don't think so. Uh, first of all, again, we don't know what Merrick Garland is or is not doing. And secondly, somebody at that level of government who's been um, in government for that long as a judge... Um, He's he's used to dealing with threats. Uh, I have friends who used to work in the Department of Justice who still get death threats all the time. Who had to who had to uh, get firearms training because the the threats against their life were taken so seriously by the FBI. So I you know this is this is not Merrick Garland's first rodeo. He's not going to let the likes of Donald Trump uh, scare him out of doing anything. Um, and hopefully he's doing that thing that we all hope he's doing. From Stacy, my boyfriend is a Republican and I love him, but we can't talk about politics without a conflict coming up. Tell me, do you have Republican friends? How do you navigate conversations about politics? He keeps telling me that he doesn't like Donald and that he's an idiot, but that he's good from a business perspective. I'm a mild-mannered person, so I think if I have all of my facts laid out, I can educate him in small doses without being hot-headed. Where should I start? I, I would start with the most basic um, fact that he is indeed a failed businessman. He's never had a successful business in his life. Uh, there is plenty of evidence to support this. Uh, you could start with the massive um, investigative piece that was printed in the New York Times on October 2nd, 2018, that lays it out. You know, Donald has said for decades now that he got a loan, a small loan from his father uh, for a million dollars that he had to pay back. Um, I mean, I don't know in the context of whose life a million dollars is is a small amount of money, but I guess, you know, uh, he'd like to claim that. Um, the truth of the matter, though, <laughs> is that over the course of his lifetime, Donald received in excess of $413 million from my grandfather and pretty much squandered all of it. Uh, so there are multiple bankruptcies. Yeah, he got bailed out all the time. 
which is um, a travesty we're still suffering through, unfortunately. Like, we are suffering through the results of the fact that he was enabled time after time after time, but he was not enabled because he was a good businessman. He was enabled because banks and the media had too much invested, and my grandfather had too much invested in him. So I would definitely start there. And no, I do not have any friends anymore who are Republicans, although I used to. Used to have lots of friends who were Republicans. Uh, that all changed in 2016. And I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that will change back in the, probably not in the, the near future. From Kate in West Yarmouth, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, one of my favorite places. What does centering Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney mean? Does it stop them from being on the January 6th committee investigating team? What can and what can't they do anymore? Uh, it has no impact. Uh, this was a, a resolution to censure Representative Cheney and Kinzinger from, uh, that was put out by the Republican National Committee. This was not something that happened in Congress. It does not uh, interfere with their ability to serve on the January 6th committee, which they can do as long as they want to, um, as long as they're still in Congress. But it's not, it's not simply symbolic either. Um, I don't, I don't think it really affects Adam Kinziger so much uh, because he's not running for office again. But for Liz Cheney, uh, not only will the party not give her any money for her re-election campaign, but they will, I, I, this may have happened already, they, they will run a primary challenger against her. So, um, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Um, that, that she is going to have to deal with. And, and honestly, um, I am not a fan of Liz Cheney's, but in this particular instance, I do applaud her, uh, willingness to stand her ground given the political and probably personal cost to her. Um, from JC. There is so much storm and drong over the impending second civil war. How do we bring about American detente? What are some solutions or policies that could heal the divide now that the problem has been exposed? You know, I, I don't think there's anything that, that the two parties can do together at this point. Um, I think the Democrats need to ignore the Republicans and act like they are the party in power because they are the party in power. And they need also to begin to acknowledge in a very public and loud way that the Republican Party is out to destroy American democracy. That's what they should be running on. They should be turning every single person into a one-issue voter. In November, are you voting for democracy or are you voting for fascism? Because it's quite, it's that simple. And then hopefully the Democrats will increase their majority in the House and certainly in the Senate and start passing legislation as they've been trying to do and have to some degree done uh, that will help make the American people's lives better. That's what we need to do. We need to show people the government works and that it can make a radical change for the better in their lives. Uh, from Valeria, should Democrats attempt to expand the Supreme Court or might it risk backfiring? I talked about this at the beginning of the show. There is absolutely no downside to expanding the Supreme Court. Like, seriously, like, what's the worst that could happen? The Democrats, uh, the Republicans will have a temper tantrum? I mean, they do that every day anyway. And, and now, without our having a majority, uh, this, the Supreme Court, as it's currently constituted, is turning back the clock. You know, they represent 30% of the people in this country, maybe. They're going against the will of over 70% of us time after time after time in Texas. Now, women 
and, and uh, other childbearing people are second-class citizens. That is going to happen in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Florida, in Tennessee, and on and on and on. Right now, the Supreme Court just decided that the votes of most black Alabamians shouldn't be allowed to count. So I don't see what we lose by playing hardball here. Double the size of the federal judiciary, add four seats to the Supreme Court, and not just anybody. We want four liberal 40-year-olds put on the Supreme Court like yesterday. Thank you for listening to and watching this episode of The Mary Trump Show with me, Mary Trump. I hope you will join us every week as I have conversations with some of my favorite people at the intersection of politics, activism, and culture. You can find the podcast at Apple and anywhere else you listen to your podcast except Spotify. Uh, if you do listen on Apple, please give us a five-star review because it, one, it really helps uh, people find the show and two, it really counteracts all the Joe Rogan Dubros who gave me one-star ratings last week. Um, on YouTube, please watch, subscribe, and press that bell so you will get alerted every time a new show drops. Thank you so much again. If you have questions, you can send them to mary at politicon.com. I'll see you next week. Stay safe. <laughs>